You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content What does an Alaskan fishing guide and a public land deer hunt have in common? Well, not not too terribly much, but the guy that we have on this episode today, his name is Mitch Schmidt, and during the summer months, he is an Alaskan fishing guide, and this past fall 2019, he went to hunt some public land in Kansas and walked out with a booner. So that's what this podcast is about. We're gonna, I thought it was just going to be an episode about whitetails, but I got so intrigued in his story about what he does up in Alaska that that takes up almost half the episode. And then the second half of the episode, we actually get into the meat and potatoes of this public uh, spot that he found in Kansas that sounds really good. Uh, he got a little help from some locals. He did his e-scouting. He put some boots on the ground, and him and his buddy connected with two deer in about three or four days, and he actually walked away with a Boone and Crockett animal. 
So that's what this episode is about. And before we get into this episode, we have to talk about wasp broadheads. Now, you guys know that I'm a fan of wasp broadheads. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking a majority of their broadheads are actually made in America and they come in a variety of different uh, fixed blade or mechanical options. And I'm looking here at their uh, fixed blade broadheads. We'll, we'll cover that first. Um, so they have the drone, they have the Wasp, their newest one is called the Wasp Havilon. It's uh, it was a, it was like a, a branding handshake between Wasp broadheads and Havilon knives. They have the Boss 3 blade, the drone, like I said. I am a huge fan of the Boss 4 blade. So it is a, it's a smaller diameter cut but it has four blades uh it's a tough broadhead right i mean it's durable the uh the mechanical options here now are and i'll tell you which one's my favorite i've killed a lot of deer deer with this they have the jackknife they have uh the z-force and they have the jackhammer selecta cut but i have killed a ton of deer over the years with the jackhammers i think it was one of the first mechanical broadheads that i bought all those years ago so i'm telling you wasp makes a badass broad broadhead uh, my personal choices are the jackhammer and the boss four blade big fans of those two heads uh, so for more information why don't you head on over to wasparchery.com take a look at the heads that these guys offer again they're very durable and uh, I got a discount code here. I want to look for you. Okay, 20% off of your purchase. If you enter at checkout the discount code, the number nine fingers, so nine fingers 2020. The number nine followed by the word fingers 2020, no spaces, and it's going to save you 20% off of your purchase. So uh, go check out Wasp Broadheads. And now let's get into today's podcast episode with my new buddy. Mitch Schmidt. I'm going to start recording in three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Mitch Schmidt. Mitch, what's up, man? Not too much, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk a whole bunch about different things today. You know, that's what we do on this podcast. But um, the first thing, you've been on this podcast before, right? What did we talk about? Yeah, I we just talked about deer hunting as a whole, um, how I got into hunting, kind of more turned into more of a bull hunter. Um, and then when I was a little baby face that I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to take a 200 inch, uh, gross white tail here in Wisconsin. Oh, that's right. That's right. You lucky dog. You one of those, <laughs> one of those kids that I hate, right? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I think that's exactly what you said actually last time. <laughs> I didn't mean it. Uh, but, uh, it, with with shooting a deer that big, right? Obviously, everybody wants to shoot a two hundred inch deer. Do you think that that deer, when you shot it and you found, you know, you you know, you scored it or whatever, two hundred inches, does that number of two hundred still carry any type of weight with you at all? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean. I guess now that was a non-typical. So now my next thing is I'd love to kill a 200. It's typical, but um, I think that benchmark. I don't think 
if it ever gets to the point where that number gets old to somebody, you probably should hang it up because even even 150 inch gear, I still think is an awesome deer. Right, right. But as far as are you making any decisions in the whitetail woods based off of that number or a numbers type game when it comes to inches um, of antler? I mean, yeah, I, I've been pretty fortunate since then to take some pretty nice deer. Um, honestly, though, I would say more so it's an age thing for me now. Um, like this previous year, the main farm that I hunt uh, in Wisconsin, the the biggest buck wasn't actually the one that I wanted to shoot. Um, we had a couple of them that I knew were four years old, four years old or older, that I was kind of hoping to get a crack at one of those and let the three and a half, two and a half go. Um, I'm a big believer that you can't shoot a two and a half year old every year and expect to eventually shoot some that's three and a half or four and a half. So I honestly have kind of transitioned more to the age. Um, I obviously still love big antlers, but I just think if you have a better age structure, the antlers are going to come with it eventually. Right. Right. So let's see today. We're going to talk about this, this bow hunt that you uh, did in Kansas, but before we get into that, right, the was last summer because I've been I've been trying to pressure you into uh, starting a fishing podcast here on the Sportsman's Nation, and uh, you said, "Hey, man, I'd love to do it, but it's not going to work this last year because you went to Alaska to work on a fishing boat." Yeah, no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a commercial fishing boat. It was a lodge, um, so we would have clients come up. And uh, it was pretty much all fly fishing, and the main thing was rainbow trout, but we'd also do some um, salmon fishing as well. So it was more of a sport fishing outfit than a commercial fishing I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay, so uh, clients come in, and you take them fly fishing out where? In the oceans or in the streams in Alaska? Well, yeah, it's all, um, it's in the Bristol Bay region. There's a bunch of different interwining um, rivers and lakes and stuff. So what happens is... um, you'll get the salmon that run up these rivers and during that time, it's such a small window of feeding for a lot of those, the rainbows and stuff. So their main food is um, the flesh from the dying salmon and like the eggs. So these salmon come up, the rainbows follow them out of these big freshwater lakes that are up there. And it's just, I mean, it can be just an absolute free for all. Um, Some of the best fishing, if not the best fishing I've ever seen in my life, especially trout wise. I mean, it's, if anybody ever gets an opportunity to go up there that likes to fish, I would say you have to take it. And it's just, it's incredible up there. Right. Yeah. Everybody I talk to who's been to Alaska, whether it's to fish or to camp and hike or to hunt, say it's a game changer. It's just, I don't know if it's more like uh, just knowing you're in Alaska that makes it so exciting because it's so distant and and far from the rest of the United States or if there really is something I don't know that I, kind of like a uh an adventurer right someone who you know like uh, Lewis and Clark right one of the first people to kind of go across the country and mark their own territory I think there's still some of that uh, aura around Alaska yeah, no, I would I would completely agree. I mean, like I said, the fishing is the best fishing, trout fishing you can find in the world, I think. I mean, there's Camp Chatka and that, which is in Russia. Um, that's pretty pristine as well. But there's something about the mountains. You know, I am I was within 10 yards of full-grown brown bears, you know, saw bull moose. 
and then you go up these little tiny rivers with jet boats and you're skimming through like a couple inches of water. I mean, it's just like you said, the adventure of it. If you're going up there with the sole purpose of you need to catch a limit of fish or you need to get a, a 30 inch rainbow, it's kind of like the benchmark up there. That'd be like shooting a Boone and Crockett deer. Um, if your sole goal is to go up there for that, you're, you're going up there for the wrong reason. I gotcha. So tell me about why, why did you want to make this your summer job? Well, I got let go. I, when we talked last time, I was doing insurance sales. Um, really did not enjoy it. I was actually kind of blindsided. I got fired, didn't see it coming. Um, and I kind of wanted to do this right out of college, but I thought, you know, I'm going to do the adult thing. I'm going to take the safe road, took the job I had lined up. And then when I got let go, it was kind of, well, what do I do now? So I was just kind of like, you know what, screwed. I'm going to go get my captain's license. Um, cause I had experienced all of my mission. So I had the hours that I needed to get back and I said, forget it. I'm just, I'm going to make it happen. I'm not getting any younger. Um, and I just applied to, I think I probably applied to 25, 30 places, had six, seven interviews and took a job that February or either January, or February, um, for the following summer. So it wasn't like this was a planned out thing. It kind of was like, well, seize the moment. This is, this is what's happening. Make the most of it kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do you enjoy yourself up there? What are, what's a, what's a day to day routine up there for you? Um, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy it a lot. I mean, it turns into work. Um, I think if you talk to any outfitter guide, um, fishing or hunting, I think they'd agree. It turns into a grind. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta perform or clients aren't going to be happy, but we'd get up usually anywhere between, oh, five and 630. Um, you had all your stuff packed up and ready to go the night before. And then I would say at least at the lodge I was at last year, 90% of your days, you're hopping in a float plane and flying out, um, to different rivers and lakes, depending on the day, what's fishing good. Um, cause every, every river is different up there. Some rivers, if you get a bunch of rain, it affects it and you can't fish it that day just cause the water isn't right. Um, but then a different river would be, would be prime. So you kind of got to, you, you kind of keep an eye on it from day to day. And, um, the managers are kind of, you know, they've been doing it for a while. So you'd hop in the plane, um, you'd land, you'd start fishing, you'd fish till about noon. We'd do a shore lunch every day, um, relax a little bit. And then you fish the back half of the afternoon and you'd get back anywhere from three thirty to six thirty, depending on which specific trip you were doing. So it's kind of nice. It was a variety of different locations you never were seeing the same thing every day um at least more than you know five six days in a row wow that seems uh definitely seems like uh something that uh, a young man uh would be doing because if i said all right uh, honey for my additional income to help support this family i'm gonna go to alaska for how how how, how long did you go up there for I was up there. Um, I left, I think, like the first couple of days in June, and I got back like the last day in September. Okay. So it ended up being right around four months. Four months. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely overall. I mean, there were a couple of guys that were older um, that were there. Like one of the guys that I still keep in touch with, he's, I think, high 40s, low 50s. Uh, but it's definitely a young man's game. I mean, it's it's hard, long days. It's physical. I mean, you're blowing up rafts, loading the planes, unloading the planes. Um, you're out in the elements. It's always raining in Alaska. We got lucky this last summer. Apparently, it was one of the driest years they've ever had. Um, so I didn't get 
get too wet too often, but uh, the conditions can just be brutal. Yeah. What about uh, the the fishing itself, right? So are you are you in? You take a plane certain places, you take a boat certain places, and then you you get out and you start wading up these streams to fly fish. Is that how it works? Uh, some of them, yeah. Uh, a lot of them, either what you would do is like one of the rivers, you would have this little like it would be like a lake that you would drop into with the plane. You would blow up the rafts. You'd go down this little slough, then you'd go down the river, float it. You know, so you'd get out and wade fish, or you'd have them fish in the raft. Um, and then there's another slough down further that would uh, kind of transition into a different lake. So then the plane would be like, all right, we want you here at four o'clock and you would have to go down that stretch. Um, but then there's other rivers that that's the, that's the other thing with Alaska. Like people don't understand and I didn't understand it either till I got up there, but logistics is everything. Um, I mean, these boats, they'll, they'll fly out there and some of these boats stay on these rivers and then you have to take the motors out there in the beginning of the year. Um, so then if you have a boat, it's easy, you know, you can go up and down the river. But, like, when it comes to the, the rafts, especially, the time management is huge. Um, and then, like I said, you can get out and wade fish or whatever. Um, I personally like the boat trips better because I don't like rowing a raft. I suck at it, <laughs> comparatively, <laughs> at least. Right. So you're you're going back this summer again, right? Yeah, I'm going back, but I'm going to a different lodge, actually, this year. Okay. So um, is this something that, uh, like, what kind of experience do you need to do your job? Um, I would say you definitely, I I wasn't, like, I still wouldn't say I'm, like, a professional fly fisherman by any means. Um, but you got to have a basic knowledge of fly fishing, really just having a good work ethic. You got to be willing to work hard. Um you got to be passionate about fishing too. I mean, you're getting up, getting the crap beat out of you every day with the weather and, you know, you work in six, seven days a week. Um, so you just got to be willing to get after it and really, really just trying to make an experience as good as possible for the people that are up there. Um, but it depends lodge to lodge too. I mean, there's certain lodges that they're going to want you to have four, five, six, seven years of experience before they'll even consider you. And there's other entry level lodges that they need a warm body. Um, you do need a captain's license, uh, which is issued through the Coast Guard. It's a six-pack license, it's called, um, in order to run a boat. You can do the raft trips and, like, wave trips without it. Um, but overall, like I said, I mean, if you have the general gist of fly fishing, the, the fishing portion of it isn't the hard part. It's the, you know, keeping the clients happy, keeping them safe, um, stuff like that. Because, I mean, the fishing, generally speaking, takes care of itself with how good it is up there. Right. So I know you're from Wisconsin. How, like, being up there that one year, you've decided to go back. How long until you just eventually move up there and live in Alaska? Oh, man. It's funny you say that because I, I've jokingly told my parents multiple times, like, I think I'm just going to go up there because I would love to shoot a sheep one day, a brown bear and a moose and a caribou and all that stuff that's up there, and I'm sure you've looked into it, it is not cheap. Mm-hmm. And if you're a non-resident, it's not an option. Because you need, I believe, believe for a brown bear, a sheep, and a mountain goat, I believe you need to have a guide. Yeah. You can as a non-resident go up there. And you're talking 20 grand, 30 grand for those hunts. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I doubt I ever will. I, I, I don't know, I guess. I have a current girlfriend that I'm pretty serious with, and I know that would be a no-go for her, but 
you never know. We'll see. We'll see how life goes and where where it takes me. I guess. Yeah. So we have. Uh, I think God. Someone was on from Alaska, or they live. They lived up there. Or they moved up there, or their brother lives up there, or something like that. And a resident can get like fifty four different tag options in one year. I believe it is. Yeah, it's it's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. I totally would believe that. It's. Like I, have, I know a guy or two that lives up there that I keep in touch with. And I mean, the spring black bear, the spring grizzly bear, the spring brown bear hunts, the, the sheep, the moose. Go, I mean, it's. I was big on listening to podcasts with that um, in the middle of winter when there wasn't anything else to do. And I tell you what, it, it's literally a hunting and fishing paradise up there. Yeah. It's in the, and even, I mean, I know. A lot of people, it's it's about shooting an animal, but just the experience up there. Like I said earlier, it's it's just incredible. It's the the scenery, the mountains, everything. It's just so awesome. Right. So you're are you in are you fishing in an interior lake or are you fishing in like a bay that leads to an ocean? It's what what it is is um, it's the Iliamna like drainage in Lake Iliamna. I wanna I don't know exactly if it's. I don't. If I say it, I'm going to be wrong. It's it's one of the biggest freshwater lakes I know in North America. Um, but these rainbows live in that, and then there's these feeder like creeks and rivers. But what happens is the the all the salmon they come out of the ocean from um, the Quijack River connects all those, and then they fan out into all these little things. So you'll have a bunch of them in one river, but then the other river will have a bad year. There won't be as many, and they all I don't know if it's true or not, but they claim that. Like, if a sockeye is born, um, sockeye is like, you see those big, like, pictures of big, big pods of red salmon. Those are sockeyes. Okay. Um, if you, I don't know if it's true or not, but they claim that those fish will return to the exact same river that they were born in, and they'll spawn within a couple yards of where they were born. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I knew, I do know. Um, I'm almost positive they always do return to the same river that they originated from um, once their life spans up and it's time for them to go spawn and, and do that. Uh, what What is that time frame look like from the time they leave those those rivers to the time that they, like, so they go to the lake and they get big, now it's time for them to go return. How many years is that? I Every salmon species is different. I, I should know this. I believe that the cohos, which are silver salmon, are three years. I want to say the sockeyes are three years. Pinks are two, and kings might be four years. It's all like between like two and three or four years. Yeah, yeah. I could have, I could be wrong with that, but that's about the time frame, depending on which species. I, sh- I should know that, but I, I don't want to tell you for hundred percent. Right. Well, that's interesting, man. Um... I tell you, so let me ask you this. At the lodge that you were at this last year, if you know the, the rates for this this year, if someone wants to go up there and experience that, you know, uh, what is the rates? How much is a guy going to expect to have to pay to go on a trip like that? The lodge I was at this last year, I want to say it was 8500 or 9000 for the week, and then that's you show up. Sunday afternoon and you leave Saturday night, the following Saturday night. Um, I think the one I'm going to this year, I don't know exactly, but I want to say it was like 10,500. Um, that's all your meals included, the days of guided trips, your float plane trips out, 
but there are lodges that will do it where you're fishing their home river and that's it. If you want to do a fly out one day, it's an extra X amount of money. Um, I mean, there's lodges that you can go anywhere from high, high end, like kind of where I was at it. That's kind of getting to your top tier to little lodges or, you know, lower end lodges where you're not having all the amenities. You're not doing the fly outs, stuff like that. But I would say, like, to truly get an awesome, awesome experience, like top-notch, you're looking between probably $8,000 and $12,000. And that's for that's for a whole week, and that's for one person? That's a week. Yep, yeah, okay. per person. So Got it's it. not, it, it's unfortunate. It's not uh, kind of, I hate to say it, but it's almost a rich man's game. If, if the, you want to go that lodge option, I mean, there's places that you can go on Anchorage and buy, like, Kenai and stuff where, you can do, you know, the self-guided in that, um, but it's it's not going to be these prestigious, you know, fly-out rivers. You're going to be dealing with the pressure and stuff um, of local people and stuff like that. I got you. Uh, any crazy bear encounters? Uh, I didn't have, I mean, it's pretty crazy to be, you know, 10 yards away from a full-grown brown bear, uh, but I didn't have anywhere I ever was like, was really, really nervous. Like I thought I was going to, that was the end of me. Um, there was like, I think it was three, three of them that were fishing right in front of us. Cause they, it's funny. They'll like bob up and down the river and they'll catch a fish. They'll take like one bite and then they'll go to the next one. They just like eat the brains usually. Yeah. And they like the, they like the egg. Um, and they just would not leave us alone. Like we kind of slowly kept working our way down, working our way down, but they just, they were having at it. Um, so that was uh, kind of a little nerve wracking. And like the first couple of times it's like, Oh my God, that thing could literally like, take my face off at any point. <laughs> um, but honestly, like I, I hate to compare them to dogs and like downplay them because they are dangerous. They can be dangerous, but there's so many fish. Like they're not looking to, they're not looking to eat you. They're not like the interior grizzly bears you hear in like Montana and stuff like that. Um, you know, they're pretty mellow. I almost compare them to overgrown dogs. Like I said, obviously, take that with a grain of salt. Um, but they're not out there trying to get you. There was one instance where they thought uh, they were going to have a little incident with one that false charged at the lodge. Um, I was at last year, but it, it ended up uh, turning around last second. So, Okay. Man, that's just one. You, you don't think about that on, you know, a Mississippi river or uh, right. an interior right. lake in Wisconsin. It's like, Oh, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about a bear attacking me today. But when you go to these right. other places, man, that's a, uh, that's interesting now. And if you don't want to answer this question, you don't have to, but uh, so you go up there, how much money does a guide in your shoes make throughout a four month span? Is that, is yeah. it, are you doing it for the money or are you doing it for more of the experience? Yeah, no, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I would say you're not gonna you're not gonna become rich doing it unless you can find some like one of my friends that I met up there. He does um, he does summer in Alaska, and then he does elk hunts in New Mexico, and then he does whitetail hunts in Kansas and Iowa, and then he has a couple months off, and then he does steelhead fishing in spring. So if you can get a rotation down like that, you can make pretty good money. Um, Last year, I think I started uh, as a first-year guide. I think I got $2,900 a month, and then I don't know what ended up with tips. I maybe made an additional ten grand. Uh, but, like, this year, I'm getting 4000 a month with being at this different lodge, and I think he said expect between 
twelve and fourteen thousand dollars in tips. I mean, you if you prorate it out, it's seventy five thousand dollars a year. It's just finding something to fill in on the back two half or two thirds of the year is where it gets tricky. Yeah. What about the uh, the tips? Because I. To be honest with you, when I first heard about guides and outfitters, I thought it was just a, you know, like you go to an outfitter and you, you're supposed to tip the cook and you're supposed to tip your guide and you're supposed to do all these other tips. And I didn't, I didn't understand that. I didn't know that until someone told me that, you know, Hey, actually it was a guest on the podcast. Like, yeah, you're supposed to tip the cook and you're supposed to tip the, um, uh, how, you know, whatever. But for you, I mean, it sounds like that's, it's almost a standard, right? Everybody knows that when you go on a trip like this, you're supposed to tip the guide. What does an average tip look like for you? Oh, uh, it's tough to say because, see, they, I, well, knowing that I, that worked there, I don't, I didn't personally agree with how they did the tips at this place. Um, they, I couldn't even tell you what the average is because we never got to see it. They had all these people trained to where, you come in, you pay, and you tip at the end um, on the entire bill. So I, there were very, very few instances where someone handed me like a $100 bill at the end of the day. I got you. So what they do is they pull all the tips up at the end of the week, and then they had shares. So like the mechanic had X amount of shares. The chef had X amount of shares. The guide here has been here one year. He has two shares. This guy has been here for three years. He has four or five shares. So it's it's hard to say. Um, like I said, I didn't necessarily agree with that because I felt that there were definitely some people that had more than they should have, and I thought there were some that had way less, excluding me. Like aside, right? You know the uh, the ladies who are cleaning up after people and dealing with soiled sheets and bathrooms and stuff. They're getting one share. I think they might be worth a little bit more than that, but that was just me personally. Um, but this lodge I'm going to this year, everybody splits it equal, no matter your seniority, anything like that. So, but I mean, figure if you do, um, you know, I would say the tips are probably a third of what you make in the summer. Okay. All right. So, uh, you have fun doing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you, you don't enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. I mean, you're not going to make enough money to where if you're miserable, you should keep doing it. Is, is this something that is kind of setting you up for like creating your own guide service or your own outfitting service someday? Or is this just like, you know what, while I'm young, I'm going to do this. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, I love guiding. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, I did the Lake Michigan thing before I went up to Alaska but the, pro- the problem is I like to fish and hunt just as much for myself. And that's kind of where you got to weigh it out. Cause if you want to make money doing it, you got to do it when it's good. Well, you know, that if it would be where I'd start guiding deer hunting, then I don't get to deer hunt myself as much. Um, I don't know. I definitely, I've definitely thought about it hard the last couple of years. I definitely want to try to do something with the outdoor industry though. Cause that's really the two things I'm passionate about are hunting and fishing. Um, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I mean, that's the other thing that's tough is it's a natural resource. So like in Lake Michigan right now, the big thing is how many salmon should they plant in the lake? Well, you know, if that natural resource kind of takes a turn for the worst, well, you're out of business because there's no fish to be caught. You know what I mean? So it's, 
or like this virus. I mean, I know that's affecting a lot of the guys, the local guys here, because they can't they can't guide in Wisconsin right now. Yeah. So if you had your three months to make money, you know whether it's right or wrong, whatever that's that's besides the point. You know your season's almost going to be cut in half if they don't open up until whenever it is. So it's just there's a lot of outside factors that kind of bother me about it okay. that you can't control. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, you kind of sparked my interest. I, I, I know Alaska is on my list of both hunting and being able to go and uh, just explore, right? So uh, ever since I was able to watch National Geographics with my kids, man, I, I've always wanted to go to Alaska. And uh, it's definitely something that I want to do that someday is, you know, hunt and fish up there and Hell, if, uh, you know, you make it big up there and you move up there and you start your own business, well, I might have to, I might have to go up and support somebody I know. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's not, uh, it's not completely out of the question. Maybe one day I will move up there and, and do something, but just kind of taking it out of goes for now, but it is an amazing place. Like I said, I, anybody who is on the fence of how oh, do I want to go or not, it's kind of an expensive trip. If you enjoy the nature at all whatsoever, you got to go. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's just, it's the last frontier. I mean, when they say it, it's not, they're not kidding. It, it, it truly is like the last place I feel. The other thing that compared that I've been to slightly would have been Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. But now we're going to do a hard pivot, right? We're going to stop talking about fishing in Alaska and we're going to start talking about this. Uh, was it 2019 season or was it 2018? Yeah. No, it was 2019. It was just last year. Last year, okay. So you were in, let's see, you were in Wisconsin, and you and your buddy decided to hop in a car and go hunt some public in, in Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we for Kansas, um, at least where we were, you have to apply. Actually, I think, I think the entire state of Kansas, you have to apply, but it just depends how good the draw odds are. So we kind of had it planned out ahead of time. Right, okay. So... Um, how does that, uh, application process work for Kansas? Um, it's actually funny you say that cause it just closed the other day. It closes the 24th of April, I believe. Um, so, but from the 1st of April to 24th, I think that's statewide. Um, you pick two, you pick your, your main unit and then there's like a, you can get it where you have a bordering unit. So you get to hunt two units. I don't know how many units there are total. Um, and then you, um, you wait, I think you find out in June if you draw when we went, we talked to some guys that were down there and they said they've drawn seven years in a row now. Um, so from what I gathered, it's, you'll get it every year or every other year for the most part. Um, is this so a lottery or is it a preference point? They have points. They okay. have points. Yeah. You can just buy a point if you want. So like when I put in with my buddy, I had bought a point the year prior. He didn't have any, so I don't know. I don't know if that. I don't think that gave us an advantage because I don't know if they do it where they average points or if it's like uh, Iowa where they take the least amount of points. Yeah, um, I'm not 100 sure on that. Did you, did you ha- like apply as a group, just the two of you? Yeah, just the two of me. Me and my buddy, we applied as uh, yeah, a group of two. Okay, so that may have helped in the long run with uh, someone with two points versus or a group of uh, two guys with three points, as far as you know, as opposed to two guys with two points. Yeah, no, and actually, that you say that, um, 
we talked, the guys that we talked to that have drawn every year, they've applied as a group every year. And that they said, you do have better chances if you apply as a group. And we actually applied as a group of four this year with those two guys. Um, we're going to actually get a house with them in that. So it's kind of funny. You go down to Kansas for a week and now you're going back next year with two guys from Georgia. But, uh, so yeah, we applied as a group of four cause they did say you do have a better chance of, uh, of drawing then. Got you. So why, why Kansas of all places? Um, well, we had did Nebraska the year before, um, with some guys and it kind of, um, kind of fell apart the group we had one guy passed away in an accident the other guy was on the fence about wanting to go and then we said well we should go back to Nebraska again kind of in memory of him and it just it all kind of you know it can be tough planning a group thing especially when you have stuff come up like that out of the blue um so I just told my one buddy he's, he's my best hunting buddy I said hey man I'm going to Kansas I'm applying if you want to come with great if not I'm going regardless because I always hear Kansas and Iowa, and Iowa takes so long to draw a tag. I'm like, I knew one other guy, <clears throat> local guy here, that he would send me pictures every year come come November of all these giant bucks on his uncle's farm. Um, so I'm like, I'm going to go see what it's all about. And we just kind of did it on a whim. We saw we drew, and um, we did a little bit of pre-research uh, of areas that had a decent amount of public land because we weren't going to do any, any, or any private. We didn't have a lease, nothing like that. Um, so we applied kind of, I wouldn't say we threw a dart at a map. We had a general idea where we wanted to go, but, uh, we kind of winged it to start out, to be honest. Was there a lot of options as far as public land in the unit? Because I, I feel like Kansas has a really small amount of public land similar to Iowa. Um, yeah, I mean, there, you definitely have to pick and choose where you go. Um, the area we went, there's a decent amount of public land. I wouldn't say it's crazy, but like, I guess it's all, it's all relative though. Like, even out in Nebraska, it's like people are saying how much pressure it gets and Kansas saying how much pressure, um, compared to, I'm from Wisconsin, but compared to here, I mean, our public land, you'll have a 40 and you'll have eight guys on it opening day. So if we go out on 1500 acres and we see three other guys, we're thinking, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. So it's all all kind of, kind relative. of relative, yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, what was what was that like when when you and your other buddy decide, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to Kansas this year? What, um, you know, what was the steps like? Did you already have some inside information from that other friend uh, in in Kansas of what unit you should apply for and where to at least start looking? Yeah, he did. He gave us a general area, but. Um, we actually didn't end up going where he told us to. I, uh, I shouldn't even say this. I, I just would say there's, there's certain things you can look back between record books and county records and stuff like that, that you can kind of start dialing in where, you know, your better areas are going to be. I, I personally think, and I could be completely wrong, but I think you can't go wrong in Kansas. It sounded like everyone I talked to since, that Kansas is just a great state in general, but there's definitely little things that you can pick up on and realize that um, kind of point you in the right direction. Yeah. Um, like those records, like you can get them broken down by county of Boone and Crockett entries, Pope and Young entries, um, 
you know, your success rates, stuff like that. If you, if you dig in deep enough and you, you want it, you, you'll find, you'll find your little niches and your areas that are, are better than others. Okay. So you, uh, you did a little research and then you found out what you, you wanted to apply for. And this was, was this a hunt where you had access to private ground too, or was this going to be an all public land hunt? No, all public. We'd never been down there before. Um, that was, that was kind of one of the things we wanted to just go down there without any permission. I think if we were brand into a local that said, Hey, I got, I got 500 acres have at it. I don't think we would have said no to it, or at least I know I wouldn't have said no to it if it looked good. But our, our original intent, yeah, was down to go down and hundred percent public land and just kind of scout the first couple of days and then go from there to see what we saw. If we had to, we would have picked up picked up and you know drove a complete opposite end of the unit if we had to okay so when you uh when you started your scouting it wasn't most of it just digital scouting through onyx or another app yeah um onyx um was the main one like i said the biggest thing we once we kind of figured out areas that had the quality of deer that we were looking for it was just making sure there was enough public land um, I called some DNR biologists down there in the area we went. Um, I talked to the guy in the hotel that we stayed at. I talked to him, got his input on it, um, made some phone calls. I don't, I personally don't think there's anything that beats the local knowledge. I mean, every gas station we went to, any little restaurant we went to, uh, the hardware store, we always, whether it was me or my buddy, were saying, oh, where are the deer at? Or like the tree trimming crew we saw. We're like, are there any big deer around here? And the guy just smirked. He wouldn't even give us an answer. We're like, all right, we'll take that as, yeah. <laughs> you know, they might not tell you straight up, but most times people are pretty, pretty cool with, you know, giving you insight. And a lot of the people that we ran into, they all had leases. Yeah. I think, I think the hotel we stayed at was all duck hunters and deer hunters. And I think we were the only group of guys hunting public land. Okay. I see you. I see. So a lot of the other people had private options. Right. Okay. All right. So you did your scouting and now, you know, it's time to get down there. How did you know what dates you were going to go down there and how, how much time did you allot for that, that trip? Um, we did 10 days. I wanted to hunt. There's, there's one buck local buck here in Wisconsin that, I, he'll be five and a half this year, has absolutely driven me nuts. Like, I've never been more obsessed over a deer. So I said I wanted to hunt Halloween in the first handful of days in November at home here before we went to Kansas. And we both agreed that's fine. We'll hunt the rut, the first half of the rut down here. And then we went down there. And they did say that um, it tends to be a little bit later down there than it is here. Not much, but a little bit. So we figured the second week in November would would line up perfect and we could hunt here a decent amount and still get a good portion of it down there. Yeah. That's uh, what my uncle says. He lives down in Southeast Kansas and he told me that, you know, he used to hunt in Iowa and then he went and started hunting Kansas or moved to Kansas. And he's like, it's about five to seven days later peak rut. He feels, I mean, from, from a hunter standpoint, right. It's just almost like a week later so that the second week and third week are November are his option. I think he even likes the third week in November that leads right up into Halloween down in Kansas uh, better than 
the first first and second week down there. Yeah, no, that's actually, and we met a local rancher um, down there. He even said too, he's like, all these guys come down here the first week, second week. He's like, the third week is where it's at, and that's what he he told us. He's lived there his entire life. Yeah. So okay, so you you get down there. And what did you do the first couple of days? Did you just hop into public and start scouting? Or did you guys actually have places that you, through scouting, wanted to go and hunt like day one? Um, no, we, I don't, I don't know. I'm not the best at reading maps or maybe, maybe I'm better than I think I am. And I just don't, I don't know. I always like seeing it because you, you don't know what something is until you actually see it. I feel like. Um, we rolled into Kansas at like three thirty in the morning. We took like an hour and a half nap. First light, we were just going to drive around cause it's wide open out there. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the videos and I've talked to guys. It's wide open. You got these, you know, kind of finger woods that stream all over the place along the river bottom. Um, but we got up, we left the hotel that we were staying at. We just slept in the truck. And I think, I don't think we were two miles out of town. We had like a 145-inch 10-pointer come running across the road in front of us. <laughs> and me and my buddy just like dropped jaws to the floor and looked at each other like, oh, my God, we're in Kansas. <laughs> well, then we went like another two miles down the road. No, not even. It was probably another mile down the road, like two minutes. And I think I saw the biggest 7-pointer I've ever seen in my life chasing a doe. I mean, it had to have been a 20-inch wide 7-pointer that probably would have went 130. Jeez. I mean, it was stupid. So we're like freaking out, like, oh my God, this is going to be so easy. It's like a petting zoo down here. Um, but we just, we did a lot of driving around that day, um, boots on the ground. I mean, I'm usually pretty anal about scent control, but when you're going to be down there for a week, you just got to get aggressive. We both had, uh, both had long walls and XLP stands and sticks. So, you know, nice, easy setup and that. So we were just going to boots on the ground. I think we figured, um, we ended up seeing like six or seven bucks that first morning driving around. And then we ran into that rancher I had mentioned earlier in the day or earlier in this conversation. And he told us that that one little pinch that we found was one of the best spots in the County. And we're like, well, if that guy said that, and we saw like, I don't know, we saw a really nice nine pointer just on the other side of that, where he's talking, we're like, we got to go hunt that tonight. Like I'm not waiting because he had said that there were a bunch of guys that hunted it the years before, and he couldn't believe that there was no one down there right now. Um, so we did hunt that first evening, um, but our original plan was we weren't going to hunt until Monday. We were going to straight up burn the first three days scouting and then, you know, scout hard and hunt high-opportunity places for five days or whatever versus kind of half, you know, half-assing it the whole trip. Okay. So what did you see the first couple of days from the, from the tree or, or when you got into that pinch that night, did you, I mean, was it worth its weight in gold? I mean, was it a good looking area? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, my buddy smacked his deer within 30 minutes of being in the tree. <laughs> so he set up and, uh, and his, the buck that he ended up shooting came by day one. Yeah. We, we weren't in Kansas. 12 hours and he had tagged out holy shit wow yeah yeah so yeah he got up and go ahead i didn't have good cell phone coverage where i was so i i'm always kind of a dad when it comes to that i'm like just text me when you get up like you know it can, if you don't have the proper equipment you know you slip whatever um 
and he didn't text me. He didn't text me. Well, then all of a sudden, somehow I got service, and I got a Snapchat, and it's a dead deer on the ground, and I'm like, what? what are you kidding me? Like, this isn't real. Like, that didn't just happen. He's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, all right, well, I got nine days to fill my tag now. That's nuts. So was uh, what happened? With, quick, just briefly tell his story. Um, so we actually, we both wanted to sit where I was going to go sit, but we took kayaks into where this was. That's the other thing. We bought, we bought a little 14 foot boat and we brought two kayaks. Okay. Um, so we kayaked in for this access. Um, I went on one side of this funnel. He went on the other side and we both wanted to be on the side I went to, cause that's the side we saw that a nice buck that morning. Um, but since I had the crappier kayak and felt like I was probably had a better chance of tipping it, he, he took the further roll up where he ended up shooting that buck. Okay. Wow. Um, I saw a doe and I think a fawn or two fawns that night. He he had he got set up. He said, and I think he had a couple does come through, and then that buck came kind of bumping through them. Um, and instead of following them, they broke off and went a different way, and he kept coming toward him. And uh, he drilled him at like I think it was like five yards or something. What was and he? He saw him tip over and everything. Oh man, I I don't even know how to describe him. I'll have to send you a picture, and I don't know if you want to put it on for like the picture for this podcast because it is the gnarliest looking deer I've ever seen. Like it wouldn't score very high. I think it definitely was a three and a half or four and a half year old deer or older. But it is just this gnarly looking eleven pointer. Like words can't even describe it. It's just a freak of a deer. Okay. Yeah, I think uh I'm gonna I'm flipping through right now and I see yours and then your yeah, your buddies. You sent it to me. Just yeah, it's just uh crazy. Just it looks I don't know. I don't I don't even know how to exp- a, a super spike with a, a double main beam, double yeah, like brow tine with a two point side. <laughs> Like you couldn't even like describe it. Like it's, it's, it's nuts. It's like, that's probably of all the deer I've seen, that's probably one of the most like character filled bucks I've ever seen. Yeah. It's nuts. It's a, it's a funky looking deer now. So he, he ends up tagging out on day one, 30 minutes into the hunt. And so then what, I mean, is he sleeping in every night or is he going scouting? Is he, what was he doing after that? Um, he, so we got his deer out and I don't mean to like detour here, but so we got his deer out. Um, we kayaked back and we drug it out through the land. We didn't bring it back to it on the kayak. Um, and when we were leaving, we saw this giant, like I even said, I have a video of it. I'm like, that might be a booner. Um, and ends up being that ends ends up being the deer that I shoot a couple days later. Okay. So we saw the buck I killed that night getting it out. Um the next morning he slept in. I went and drove around um looking for deer again. Kinda every time I would see a buck that I would consider to be a shooter, um I'd put a pin, whether it's on private or public, just to kinda get an idea of where they were. And I mean I was seeing I don't know, I was like putting numbers on it, but I mean I was seeing two, three, four bucks, one thirty or better every morning, damn near. I mean, it was, there's a lot of big deer in that area. Wow. Um, wow. So then we boots on the ground, walk around that day, um, found some good signs. We hunted that would have been Sunday morning then. 
Um, we didn't see a deer. We were tearing down our setup, had a deer blow, so we would have waited an extra 10 minutes. We might have been a buck. I don't know. Um, but then we hit it, like, perfect on that Monday. I think it was a 40-degree cold snap, like a 40-degree switch in temperature. Wow. Um, so that was kind of our mindset going into it the whole time was it's warm Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Let's scout, except for him getting the intel we had. Um, that was kind of the plan the whole time was to scout three days and then start right on that cold snap thinking that's going to be the day to be in the woods because that Monday, Tuesday were supposed to be super cold. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When you saw that giant, was it in your headlights or in your truck? Yeah. Or, yeah okay. So you saw that giant. Yeah, we, we, Why didn't yeah, you we go after him right away? It was it was seven at night. Eight. It was like seven thirty at night. It was it was past dark by an hour or two. I know, but what I mean oh, by that you're is saying the next day. The next day, yeah. Uh, he he was down the road a little ways, and he was on private land, and he was heading toward more private. I got you. Um, I guess I'm a big believer in your first time in is your best time in. So I kind of wanted to wait, and honestly, it wasn't the back of my mind. I'm like, I wasn't. I we didn't go down there expecting to shoot. A, a giant like i expected to shoot a nice deer but i did not have like it by any means was it that a giant or nothing so i guess it's funny you say that i don't, I don't really have an answer for that <laughs> yeah no i just i just was curious because you know for me if i saw a deer how, how far down the road was he from the the public spot i would say i would say it was probably half a mile maybe okay but it wasn't that far not far yeah uh, but like you said the way he was heading and the way he had come from was all private but okay. yeah i honestly i i don't know i guess the other thing too was like i said i guess we weren't hung up on a giant or nothing and we wanted to get as much scouting in as, as we could before the cold the snap better, right right have the better hunting um days not turn into scouting days so yeah. all right so you had that, you know, your buddy shot his buck. You got him out of there. You did, you did how many more days of scouting after that? Uh, then we, we started all day Saturday. We sat Sunday morning um, for a couple hours. We scouted all day Sunday afternoon. We had boat problems, too. We actually never got the boat that we took to run. Um, so one day I just rode it down the river. Um, and then Monday morning was I was going to go out and hunt that was going to be the start of, okay, we had three or four areas that we felt really confident, had solid buck signs, scrapes, rub, big tracks. Then it was going to be game on, you know, let's hunt these hard. And then if we have to reevaluate in a couple of days, we'll come back to it. Okay. So then um, you ended up, uh, you ended up doing your scouting and you narrowed down these places that cold front hits. What happened? Um, that Monday morning was supposed to be nasty weather. Like it, like it was a cold front, but there was also precipitation. And I was going to sit all day. It was probably blowing. I would say it was a steady 15 to 20 with gusts of probably 25. Because it's so flat down there. It's always windy. Like it's just the way it is. Yeah. So I woke up. I'm like, I'm going to wake up early. See what it's like. I don't want to go out, get soaking wet, and not be able to sit all day. So if I have to go in a little bit later in the morning after the rain was going to stop. I was okay with that. So um, we got up. My buddy's like, why don't we just drive out there? We'll sleep till first light. Wait for this to clear. If it's not clear yet, we'll go drive around for a half hour, hour, 
because it was supposed to clear up within a couple hours of daylight. Okay. So we set an alarm, first light, we drive around the section, and there's like 140-incher tending a doe. I'm like, screw this, I don't care, I'm getting in, we got to go. Like, it's it's happening. Like, they're, they're hot to trot right now. I mean, that literally was a mile down the road from where we had been parked just sleeping. Um, what go date? around. What was the date? Just out of curiosity. Oh, boy. Like oh, this, the 11th. The it was 11th. November 11th. November 11th. Yep. Okay. All right. So, yep. so you guys uh, are, are starting to make some serious moves, putting the strategy into motion. Um, and so continue that story. So, so then we, we drive back. Um, I'm, I'm going to go to the same pinch that he shot his buck out of. Um, I wasn't going to go in right away, like I said, but after seeing that buck, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to get in there. It wasn't like it was pouring by any means. It was a little sleety, but it was cold enough that it wasn't rain. So, you know, you layer up, you should be all right. Um, instead of taking the kayak and we realized that going in by foot would probably be just as easy and you wouldn't bump deer because the way they travel isn't the way the access would be. So, um, when we, when we pulled up to where I was going to walk off the road, there were three bucks right in where he shot his the other day. And two of them were pretty nice and one was small. So I'm like, well, now what do you do? You push them and just get in there. So I grabbed my, my stand, my sticks and everything just went in there. I'm like, I'm just going to get in there. There's deer moving. Like that's the fourth buck we've seen in the 10 minutes we've been driving around. Picked a tree that's probably only about 50 yards away from where he was. Um, so I had a couple good shooting lanes. Get all set up, whatever situated. Had like a spike come through. Could have got a shot at him if I would have wanted to. And then I had two bucks cut this corner by 20 minutes apart. And I text my buddy. I'm like, I really don't want to get down and move my setup. Like it's nasty out. It's cold. I'm just content with sitting here. Well, literally, I text him that. And a third buck does the exact same thing. So now I'm up to, in the stand, I've seen four different bucks. And three of them cut this corner the exact same way. And so how, like, how far was this corner from where you were at? They're probably about 100 yards away. So you needed so to make a move. For, yeah. So and, and that was the other thing, too. Like, I don't know how it is in Iowa by you, but, like, I can count on one hand the amount of deer i've called in in wisconsin here i've never i've just never had luck we're down there those guys are like oh yeah snort leaves at them grunt at them rattle they get all riled up you know um the one guy had a video of a nice buck 10 yards away snort wheezing like i've never seen that in the wild so just with the ratio down there they must just they must just fight more and be more aggressive um, but it was so windy. I don't think there would have been much I could have done calling wise. I would have reached that far. So I stripped down the whole stand, um, walk about 80 yards closer to where that corner they're cutting is about 20 yards. Um, I don't think I was set up and sitting there more than 20 minutes and a doe comes flying out to the edge of this field. And, uh, she just puts the brakes on. She didn't know I was there or anything. I mean, I had the wind in my favor and everything. But uh, I'm like, that, that's 100%. There's a block chasing here. You can just tell the way they're acting. You know what I mean? Where they, yeah. they almost like, I need to hide. Like, this is, this is annoying. Yeah. Um, so a buck uh, that I would have shot came out. Um, and the doe took off back the way she came. And I, I grunted at him, snorted and he looked at me, but he, he took off after the doe. So I'm like, well, 
if uh, if this keeps up, I mean, I'm up to six, or five bucks already from the stand, and I probably only sat two hours, hour and a half total. Um, so you so kinda, you were in it. I, you were in it. Oh yeah, it was it was game. I mean, that's the best set I've ever had in my life as far as numbers of bucks for the amount of time I sat. I mean, it was it was incredible. I could have not saw another deer the rest of the day, and that would have been awesome. So let me ask you this then: um, was it um, was it a, a a good pinch point? Was it a good terrain feature? Was it like um, I guess transition area, or was it some kind of uh, a food a food source close by? Kind of describe that to us. What made that spot so good? So what happens is it gets. There's a river on one side of you, and then what we figured is is this egg field that was overgrown with a bunch of crap. So it was just perfect bedding, basically like a CRP kind of deal. So those deer would go from that CRP, and they'd hug along this river inside the woods, because like I said, all these are little strips along these river bottoms. So they kind of pinched them between the river, and (laughs) the road is probably... 300 yards from where I'm sitting, 200 yards. So it kind of pinches them between the road and the river. And the river's not only it's crazy deep, but there's really steep banks there. So, like, there was a river crossing where you could see deer would go. It's kind of a gravel bar. But for the most part, it keeps them pinched down between that bedding area that they were coming from that I kept seeing these bucks come out of. And if they wanted to go down toward the other section of the woods, that's where they had to come through. Okay. Okay. So it was just a really good terrain feature. Yeah, yeah, just the way it, it pivoted down and it pinched them down um, to that's where they had to come through if they wanted to come back and forth. And I, I truly think that the bedding area, or what we believe was the bedding area, because it was private land on the other side, um, we think that's where a lot of the deer were bedding, and that's just why, because we had seen other big bucks in that area too. And actually, when I was, sitting my buddy had texted me saying he saw a really big nine pointer not too far away from where i was sitting um in that stuff that i'm talking about right now okay cool so you've you've seen a ton of deer you get down you make a move and uh this doe comes through it's acting like a buck's following her and then you see this buck continue the story so so that buck takes off and leaves um and the way I had to have it set up, because I am a right-handed shooter, so the way I had it set up, the the wind had to kind of be pounding right in my face to get the shot to where these deer were cutting. Um, so I'm sitting there kind of like, man, this is cool, but God, is it cold. I mean, it was like the real feel had to have been like 15, because, I mean, it was blowing probably, like I said, steady 15 to 20 with gusts of 25. It still got a little bit of sleep. So I'm just sitting there all bundled up, and uh, all of a sudden I look to my left, and all I see is rack, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is the biggest buck I've ever seen bow hunting, and he's coming right at me. He's 50 yards coming right at me. And I'm like, well, it's now or never. So I grab my bow off, and he literally goes right underneath my my feet. He's right underneath my stand. I legitimately could have jumped off and rode him like a bull. Like, he went right below me. Well, I the way I carry my sticks onto my stand, um, I had ropes, or like a pull tight. Well, I left those at the base of my tree thinking, 
they're not, you know, what are the odds they come right there and sniff them? Well, I'm never doing that again. He gets right below me. He peers around. He sniffs that strap. And I'm like, this is game over. Like, there's no way he's not bolting. Well, he slams on the brakes right below me. And I was going to shoot him on my right-hand side. Well, when he sniffed that, he didn't take off, but he kind of jumped back. I don't know, maybe three, four yards the way he had come from. And there, too, still, he, I mean, he's, he's right below me. So I drew back, and I'm like, it's now or never. He's going to bolt. And I shot him straight straight down below me, um, and he took off running. And uh, I was a little weary because I don't like taking that shot, but I know with, with my setup I have and that if I could put it in the upper third of his body and in the middle, it was going to do some damage, and I, and I felt very confident that it would be a lethal shot. Was he head away from you at that point, or was he still head towards you? He was, he was literally, like, if I was sitting on the, if I would have been straight on the ground, he would have been a hard quarter too. But he, he was literally right, right, right underneath me. Like, I honestly thought there was a chance I was going to hit my arrow on the tree stand when I let go. So it was almost a straight <laughs> vertical down shot. I'll send you a picture after this and show you. I put my backpack where he was standing, and I can't physically get my feet out of the picture. That that's is, how like right below me he was that's nuts man and and this is day three of a 10-day trip yeah we got there my buddy shot his friday scouted saturday sunday yes monday so it would have been day full day four okay so and and that was a, an afternoon hunt too right no that was i ended up shooting him i think it was at like 10 30 in the morning okay so you went in that that monday morning okay all yep, right, yeah, so, yep, yep. so you draw back, you shoot him straight down, he runs off. Did you watch him drop, or did he run away out of sight? No, he ran away out of sight, and I had lost the buck in 2017 with a very similar shot, and I'm actually, I remember us talking about the fixed blade versus the rages, and I've always been a big rage fan. Um, I actually think this fall I might switch to fixed blade because I it, the arrow did pass through, but it didn't pass all the way through. And um, so I got down to start looking for blood, and I had speck, speck, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I know this deer. I think this deer is dead. Like, I really do think that. But are you going to be able to find him with no blood? That's, and that's what happened to that buck in 2017. So I called my buddy. Um, I tracked blood a little ways. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to call him. We're not in a rush. Just take my time. Um Described the, the snare to him. I called my dad. I called my brother freaking out. Um, and my buddy, because my buddy was out driving around uh, scouting. So he came over, um, and he actually he actually texted his mom or was on the phone with his mom, like, Mitchell's going to shoot one this morning yet. And it was literally like five minutes later I called him saying I shot that one. Um, so he came out. We started tracking, started tracking. <clears throat> And actually, the blood was starting to get better. I'm like, okay, we're good. We're good. Well, all of a sudden, he pulls up his binoculars. He's like, oh, my God, there he is. He's dead in the river. He died in the middle of the river, and all you see is his big G2 sticking out of the water. And I'm oh, like, oh, Lord. I just came unglued. I was so jacked. Like, Did you know what like, you had shot at that point? Like, that It, it sounds like the encounter happened so fast i mean did you realize yeah. that at that point did you realize it was the same buck from before no i didn't realize it was the same buck as before but 
but I, I had instantly told my buddy, I said, I think I just shot a booner, like 100%. I'm like, that thing is huge. I said, I thought he was probably close to 20 wide. I think he ended up being like 18 and a half. But I'm like, and I, I was almost positive he was a clean or a mainframe eight. Like I had enough time to see that stuff. But I told him straight up, I'm like, I honestly think he could be a booner. Like I think he's he's pushing that 170s mark. Um, I knew it was he was definitely in the 60s all day. Wow. Um, but then when we saw him, I just came unglued. But then the thing was, he didn't have the kayaks with, so he had to go drive back to get the kayaks and come back. So I had to sit there for like an hour just seeing my deer floating in the river, and I'm like. All I want to do is like hold on to his rack right now, and I got to sit here and wait. That's crazy. So, but, uh, so, so, you, got- so you, you you just slammed a giant, and you're losing your you, you know your you know obviously the excitement that follows that, and you you couldn't go do anything about it. I mean, you you tracked blood. You found that he was in the river. Was it deep enough that you that you couldn't walk out and drag him out yourself, or what was the deal? If, if I would have had, like, chest waders, I think I would have been okay, um, which I think from now on, all the trips I go on, I'm going to bring chest waders, at least whitetails-wise. Um, but the problem was there were gravel bogs in the river that you definitely could, no problem. But then there were holes where it was three, four, five feet deep, and it's like, you're screwed. So there, there was no getting them without a kayak or some sort of way going out there unless you wanted to go swimming. Okay. All right, so so your buddy finally shows up with some with some help and uh, walk us through the recovery. So I went out there, paddled out there. Um, thank God there's not a lot of current in the river, at least where we were. Um, I get up to him and I, I put my hand on his rack and pull it up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this isn't even real life right now. Like it, one, to, one to have – him shoot his deer but then for me to shoot a second buck and to be as big as it was i'm like this this may not ever be topped like just crazy like mixed emotions just like could could not be happier um so i slowly it was it was difficult to kayak out with him because the kayak i had wasn't all that stable so i kind of took a rope tied his antlers to the back of the kayak and just slowly went but then i hit the shallow portion and he would drag so I shot him at 10:30. I don't think we ended up getting back to our hotel until three o'clock. Um, and then these banks, thank God it was frozen because the, the banks, like I said, are so, so steep that if it wouldn't have been frozen, there's no way we would have been able to drag them up the bank of the river. It was, it would have been just straight muck. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting, interesting way to get a deer out. It definitely was probably the most interesting drag I've ever had to do. That's bananas, man. So like, you get them out of the river and you sit there and you just like, you realize, you know, other than that, that 200 incher that you shot years ago, uh, is this the biggest buck that you've shot since then? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, we put it, we weren't sure exactly what he would go, but we put a tape to him, um, that afternoon. And my buddy's pretty conservative when he scores and he said, he had him at 175 gross that is yeah 175 gross on a public land hunt that just kind of out of the blue right i mean you you did your scouting 
you did you made some connections you formed a relationship you got some intel and uh that kind of guided you in the right direction and then from there it's just everything that you knew about hunting putting the the i get the strategy into motion and uh it all paid off in the long run man so i i have a feeling now this is a place that you're going to try to go every single year now for the rest of your life (laughs) yeah it'll be uh It'll be at least for a while to come. The thing that's like blew my mind about the whole trip, like obviously shooting the two bucks and everything was awesome, but like the locals down there say how it sucks compared to what it used to be. And I'm sitting there thinking, (laughs) if this is bad compared to what it used to be, I don't even want to know what it used to be like because it was ridiculous. I saw more 140 inch deer or bigger during daylight down there in the we came home after six days and i think we spent two more days scouting afterwards just because we're like we're down here we might as well put in some more time but i saw more deer by 140 or better in those six days than i've seen in wisconsin my entire life and i've lived here for 25 years now yeah wow i mean it's just a different world man that's nuts well, congratulations, my friend. An absolutely gorgeous deer. Uh, good luck uh, up in Alaska this year. Good luck going down to Kansas again. And uh, if uh, you ever want to stop in Iowa and pick me up on your way to Kansas, man, just let me know. <laughs> we can we can maybe make that happen. I might need to uh, I might need to get some Iowa uh, out of you. Then I got three points. So hey, there you uh, go. I'm thinking in a couple of years I'm gonna have to be going down it to uh to iowa to give it a go down there absolutely absolutely well mr mitch schmidt you have a good one and thanks for taking time to hop on all right thanks Stan, for having me and uh good luck this fall another episode of the nine finger chronicles podcast is in the books huge shout out to mitch for taking time out of his day huge shout out to all the partners of the nine finger chronicles podcast ozonics wasp lone wolf the Average Conservationist, and Vortex Optics. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And lastly, please subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast and follow along on Facebook and Instagram. Lots of cool conversations going on on the social media platforms as well. And don't be afraid to explore the Sportsman's Nation and check out the other content uh, providers like uh, the other podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation. So, Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your week. Be kind to others. And remember, 2020 is about giving back to the natural resource that we take away from every single year. Mm-hmm.